Darling one, you were born from the sweetest love, cast from the fires of creation, burning bright into the making of your perfect constellations. Head high, my love, never let them diminish you. Stand tall in the power of your love. Break open to the thousands come before you, written in your heart with holy blood. Keep going, my love. Hold tight to the scripture of your inheritance, your dreams born from ancient stone. Weave your magic star of wisdom, breathing life into hollow bones. Courage, my love. Place pain upon your sacred altars. Grow seeds where life has become hopeless. Lend hands to those who fall and falter. Let love be life's greatest opus. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dreaming the Ancestors. And really excited for today's episode with Nicola Goodall. And the title of this episode is Midwifery, Motherhood, and Scottish Folk Medicine. This is the sixth episode of the second season where we're really focusing on uplifting the voices of native Celtic wisdom keepers from the Celtic Isles. So thank you, Nicola. It's so wonderful to have you. And perhaps you could just begin by sharing just a few words about what you do as a doula and what have you, so people can get a sense of the work that you do in the world. Yeah, sure. So I'm actually not working with parents much at all anymore. I'm training a lot. I'm teaching a lot and and, and sharing circles a lot. And um, the way I'm sort of doing my work now after working with women for such a long time in their health and the family, of course, is to think about, you know, what needs to be done. <laughs> That's the way I'm looking at it. We have this lovely... Um, caveat in Islamic law, I'm a Muslim, um, and it's wajib kafahi, and it's a thing that becomes compulsory upon everyone, you know, and in, when we're studying law, it's always a dead cat somewhere holy, you know, so you see that, everyone has to remove it, and I think right now there's a lot of that kind of work that needs to get done, so we, we started with a, a doula preparation course, uh, Red Tent, the organisation I'm part of, so that birth could be better supported, and, and that relationship could be better nurtured between the family as a new one arrives. And then we realize that, you know, women are just really exhausted after they've had a baby and not looked after well. So, so we went in and started to train the, the postpartum doulas. And, and then we realized that education is so bad. You know, people expect everything to be terrible when they have a baby. So we started the radical educators. <laughs> now we've just started the traditional Chinese medicine course to get remedies back in the home. And we have trauma doula training coming up and a massage school. So we're just kind of trying to heal the world over here, basically. <laughs> One, one tiny bit at a time, one tiny bit. And with that idea that we can bring back some of these things that used to belong in the home, you know, that used to belong in the community and everyone knew. And I think we, going through these last couple of years, we can see how badly we are in our understanding of nutrition and health and herbs and so on. 
So, yeah, we're just trying to make the world a better place, looking at the birthing year particularly. Yes, and I love that. That work is so focused on the family and the home and women's medicine and community medicine. It's so, so beautiful and just so excited to have this conversation with you because, yes, it's something that this wisdom is something that is missing from so many of our lives and many of our families. Before we continue, I would love to take this moment to guide everyone for a few moments, as we always do in this podcast, to really connect with our our inner sense of self and the community that's gathered and really including our ancestors. So I would love to invite us all to close our eyes in this moment and just begin by imagining yourself gathered around a fire and imagine that we're having this conversation in the flesh, heart to heart, and we're sitting on the ground and we're sharing stories sharing wisdom. This is such a natural, intuitive way for us to be together. And I'd really love to hold this vision of us gathered around the fire and circle as we continue this conversation. And to really feel that our ancestors are gathering around us, joining the circle, to be part of this conversation so that they too can experience this wisdom, this medicine. And so I would like to take this moment for Nicola and I to call in our ancestors a little bit more intentionally in this moment. I would like to really honor my ancestors from Scotland in this moment who are further back in my lineage and who emigrated to Ireland at some point in history. And though my family has lost these stories, I still very much feel the connection to these ancestral lands of Scotland and the lowlands in particular where my family is likely from. And I really just want to invite these ancestors in especially the women folk from this part of my lineage to come and to gather and to really feel the medicine that is going to permeate through this conversation and acknowledging too that some of the women would have known this way, this wisdom, this beautiful medicine of the home. So I welcome those ancestors into our circle and I also honor the ancestors of the lands that I'm on, which are the ancestral lands of the Ute and Arapaho people. And the Cheyenne also were frequently in this area as well. So I honor these lands that I stand upon. And I honor all of the ancestors of everyone here who is listening. May we feel our connection and even open our hearts to the truth that we share many ancestors when we go back far enough. And with that, I will pass over to you, Nicola. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome, Tara. While I'm standing on those lands, we welcome you. I have DNA in every clan in Scotland, so I welcome all of those ancestors in. I come from a travelling people in all directions, so I welcome that movement of knowledge and this, the 
conquering spirit, you know, of the Vikings and the travelers, the Irish travelers, the Scottish travelers and the people on the water. I welcome in all my grandmothers and all your grandmothers because they did know, they had to know. Especially I have a great grand and she had 22 babies, <laughs> 22 babies. Grandmother Anne is welcome here. And I ask them to guide this conversation to bring to fruition what needs to come out today, what everyone needs to hear and learn about today. Welcome, welcome. Felcha, we would say in Gaelic. <laughs> Thank you, Nicola. Such a beautiful invocation to begin our conversation part of the reason I'm so excited for this episode today is because I have very little knowledge about any of these topics. <laughs> often when I do a podcast, I often know something about what we're going to speak about. And really, I, I really don't know very much about these topics. I'm not a mother. My expertise is the Irish tradition, and I don't know anything about midwifery. So I'm really going to be on this learning journey with all of you who are listening. All of these topics interests me so much. And I have so many questions for Nicholas. So this introduction is going to be brief. And I think that all I really want to share in this moment is that I'm very present to the importance and sacredness of midwifery as an ancient wisdom tradition. And I'm aware that there are lots of ancestral practices that have become lost around birthing in Ireland and Britain for a number of reasons, including the witch hunts. So I'm really excited for Nicola to share her wisdom about some of these traditions. And as some of you know, I am very dedicated to goddess Bridget, who's very much associated with midwifery. And uh, she is known in Scotland as bride. And I very much honor that aspect of her too. And in folklore, it's said that uh, Bridget, bride, is present for every birth. And women invoked her during labor for safe passage of their babies, as well as to bless the newborn child after the birth. And there's actually a wonderful Scottish folk ritual that's documented in the Carmina Gadelica, which is a text from the 1800s. And Scottish midwives apparently would stand in the doorway of the house during a birth and brace their hands on the doorframe and chant, Bride, bride, come in. Your welcome is truly made. May you give relief to the woman. Nicola, I would love to begin by hearing a little bit about your personal journey, how you became a doula and how you became interested in Scottish folk medicine and just how you came to this path. I mean, in a roundabout kind of a way, really, where I found myself supporting, you know, mothers and babies just in my community. And my sister specifically said to me when I had my first child, go off and find something to do for yourself as well. So I enrolled in a massage course, you know, and started massaging people. And then I, then it was aromatherapy. And then all of a sudden everyone was pregnant and they had babies. And it was just, I think, you know, my age, perhaps some the area I lived in the community I was in, I just found myself naturally there. And I applied for a midwifery degree you know, that seemed to be the the obvious thing to do if I was being pulled in that direction. And at the time, even though I'd been to, to take a degree at King's College, which is one of our best universities, I didn't turn up for my English language exam at high school and I didn't have it. So didn't want to go in. I didn't see the point. <laughs> I've always been quite a radical. I had an English literature qualification, I may add, and my English was fine, but that was the technicality that I didn't get in for. 
And I started to take that exam. And I love creative writing. I love English. It was fun. And I got halfway through the year, though, and had this epiphany that if I have to jump this nonsense hoop, there will be many more. And how do I feel about possibly having to brutalize people and do things that I don't want to do, you know, as a part of getting that qualification and just sacked the whole thing one day. I remember the moment on my prayer mat, just, okay, show me another way then and some other teachers. And they came one by one. I realized I lived around the corner from Michel Odon, which was a wonderful stroke of luck. He's the most phenomenal teacher. Um, he's famous for water birth particularly. They just came like one after the other in the most random, you know, circumstances. And I was very thankful to be adopted by an elder traditional midwife who said, I'm your mummy now and came from a great um, line. We have an Arabic word that I was going to use, silsila. It's like your sort of line of teachers, you know, going back. And she was taught by the local indigenous chief's tribe on Mount Hood and a very famous um, grand elder African-American midwife called Margaret Charles Smith. So it was the, the best line I could have possibly wanted, you know. And she was a Muslim as well. And it was just so wonderful to merge everything together. So I had these two kind of, you know, strains going of like family embodiment, if you like, and passing on. On, and then also seeking out the knowledge for myself and, and it being kind of thrust upon me. And I worked prolifically, you know, with families as I was having my own family, like probably too much, actually. I'm a little bit tired now. I'm taking a break and have definitely am leaning more in the traditional midwifery direction these days, which, of course, is illegal where I sit so I can't practice as a midwife in the UK. I can outside and have done on many occasions, but here I, I can't. So what I'm trying to do really is weave in the parts of traditional midwifery that were dropped with clinical midwifery to, you know, bring them back. And the postpartum at the moment is my huge passion because clinical midwifery on the whole these days in the UK just kind of drops people, you know, after they've had the baby because the services are under such pressure, especially in the last two years. So, yeah, that's how I ended up sitting here because I realized that we need more and more and more and more people doing that. So we started to, you know, bring them in to share what I've learned the little bit that I've learned in 20 something years. My my adopted mum, Peggy, um, she always said from her tradition, you're supposed to watch for 20 years and then do for 20 years and then teach. So I feel like a bit of a baby. <laughs> I understand now I'm past the first 20 years. Now I get it. You know, now I get it. I'll be amazing in another like, I don't know, 15. <laughs> That'd be the best teacher then. So I've just kind of tumbled along. But, you know, I believe this runs through my family line for sure. I'm named after the maternity ward that I'm born in. My mother is named after the midwife that caught her. And there are so many babies, like grandmother Anne there. She's many generations back with 22 children. She had several sets of multiples. If she didn't know how to stop her womb falling out, you know, I'll, I'll eat my hat because she must have done. She must have known an awful lot. And all of the people around her, you speak to an obstetrician about that scenario, they'd fall on the floor and say it wasn't possible, you know. <laughs> 
it's not even possible to have one set of twins with some obstetricians, right? So I really think it rolls down. I'm, I'm doing a lot of ancestry work and digging around, but we don't document these things, all right? We don't document what women were doing, just what the head of the household was doing. Mm -hmm. So, yes. yeah, but I, I really believe that it's not necessarily that even anyone maybe even called themselves a midwife, you know? but that they would have known an awful lot about the things that I spend my days talking about. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Thank you so much for that beautiful mm. insight into some of your journey. Mm. And a question that arises for me listening to you is I would love to better understand the difference between a midwife and a doula, because I am definitely mm. not clear. And I imagine some of the women listening here are not clear either. Doula was a, a term that was coined by a couple of researchers a long time ago. And they realized that having another woman with you when you had a baby that wasn't a member of staff or a family member made a huge difference to outcomes. Like it chops intervention rates in half, pain scales in half, and brings up breastfeeding rates and happiness, basically. So as they as they did that body of work and they coined that term, there was a kind of burgeoning movement that happened of people saying, well, let's get them out there. And they chose this Greek word because they were academics. <laughs> it's, it's up for debate the word you know um we've actually got a cohort of red tent doulas in greece so i have this conversation quite a lot with them they've kind of taken it on as kind of hand servant you know i'm at your service um but there's also the connotation of bondage with that word which is entirely inappropriate for all women i would say but especially some cohorts of women so that's the word doula and where it comes from. It's up for debate about what that the definition of that is, you know, and you will find our institutions, our doula institutions are very clear that it's non, you know, non-midwifery like in any description. There's no interfering in any way. You must never fight the institutions, etc. You must just kind of go along and support the woman often in her very difficult experience that she's having. There's now a, another cohort of doulas that are, you know fast electric sliding along to traditional midwifery they're not though practicing clinical midwifery which is also another thing to distinguish so you have a band of midwives that use a lot of obstetric things like doppler to listen to the baby and blood pressure cuffs and medications and so on and then you have another body that of course in the world using herbs and prayers and don't want anything to do with electricity and doctors unless there's a real real need so there's these kind of you know similarities mirroring in the two worlds for sure the clinical midwifery we have today is an extension of as doctors get involved so as doctors get involved with childbirth and we start dropping midwives and grannies like you know hot coals then we end up with this situation where women families humans if you like say absolutely not you know as a body so the doctors decide to call it man midwifery with a dash in the middle man midwifery and they the way they practice with lots of observations and uh, wanting a timeline and a very sort of testosterone wired brain way of doing things things change considerably and the midwifery that we have now 
is the remnants of that really because we you know that man midwifery movement also kind of supported the registration of midwives which in the uk was kind of stamped by the bishop so you can imagine how that went there were no more incantations and calling for bride at the door and so on they were just like no witchcraft no the devil no we're not doing that that's superstitious and now here we are just not really long after where that's just completely disappeared in scotland you know it's coming slowly we're you know we're championing the charge right but you don't really have those traditions that happen anymore so it's quite a complex thing to answer but essentially the difference is that the doula is not giving any clinical care she's giving support she's standing by as a witness she's holding the space and calling on everything she can call on to make it happen right and and also unfortunately protecting the birthing person these days you know from being violated there's a lot of violation mm. Wow. Yeah, which is a disgusting thing to have to say, but it's a, a reality, right? The the people are out there talking, we witness it, and the facts and figures are speaking for themselves. Mm. I'm really struck as you're speaking by a real feeling in my body, actually, and it feels a bit like rage at the ways the patriarchy and the church have come into this incredibly sacred initiation experience of birth and taken away what is most natural, what is most nourishing, what is most supportive in some of the ways that you just described. Yeah. So in Scotland and Ireland, especially Ireland, the midwifery tradition was really kind of hijacked by the Catholic Church. And, you know, I'm sure the news has reached over the ocean to you about what that meant. We have many dead bodies buried in, you know, church institution grounds and horrific stories of, you know, nuns can make wonderful midwives, of course, but there's a whole lot of them that are there to believe you should suffer during birth you know, as punishment for your sins. So that's a very complex situation to navigate. And it's influenced, I believe, it's influenced the culture, the midwifery culture here hugely. Midwives can be extraordinarily, you know, wonderful, loving beings, but they can also be quite harsh to the laboring person. And I wonder if that's when that came in. Yes, for anyone listening who isn't familiar with the Magdalene laundries, uh, mm. is often what they're called, I would very much recommend looking into that history. I actually recently just watched a movie called Philomena, which is... Yes. That's perfect. It's, yes, perfect. it's a great way to learn. It is, because mm -hmm. you understand the individual experience as well by watching that movie, and also how it travels down the next generation. Yes. And one of my questions for you, Nicola, is actually about, well, diving a bit deeper into what we already just brought up, which is mm -hmm. the way that the patriarchy and the church have really come into mm -hmm. the midwifery space. And yeah. something that I learned just recently is that during the witch hunts in Europe, midwives in particular were often persecuted as witches. And the mm -hmm. church equated midwifery and 
women's medicinal knowledge uh, with the practice of witchcraft. So as a result, the church imposed restrictions on midwives that required them to be supervised. And Mm. the supervisors would ensure that midwives were upholding their religious oath against the practice of witchcraft. Mm. And, you know, I can't help but wonder, I mean, it seems obvious to me that this is one of the reasons why more of these traditions haven't been passed on. So Nicola, I know that you're well-versed in the history of witch hunts, and I'm wondering if you could share some more information about the persecution of midwives. When you go and visit a traditional midwife in situ somewhere, you understand it. If she's, you know, really old school and practicing the way that she would have done generations back. Because midwives are there when you're born, they're there when you have your babies, they're there to tend the dead. And they're also there, even now I'm thinking of, you know, going to visit a friend of mine in that situation. And she's constantly like, oh, I sewed his hand up last week and oh, I helped this one as well. And, you know, they they know what's going on. They're also there to look after everyone's sexual health. So they know even another layer of what's going on. So they're actually at the centre of the community and wield quite a lot of power, you know, (laughs) they do. So I can see that if you want to destabilise somewhere, if you can get rid of those traditional midwives, you're, you know, really breaking the fabric of a society if you want to take it over. So I really think that that was part of the thing. When you start digging into the stories, especially in Scotland, we have the Witchfinder General, right? We kill more people than anyone else because we create this special wicked role where this absolute horror goes around torturing women to try and find witches. And the way that he does it is, I mean, he will put you know pins into you and it's like days without sleep and and of course eventually what happens is with a lot of people they say I'm not a witch but you know more Aggies down the road and if she can provide evidence of you know just verbal evidence of Morag and Shona and Mary and they're all witches she can get away you know, and stop being tortured. So that meant for us, that was a very effective way of, you know, taking out a lot of women. And we took out a lot of women in the most horrific ways. We went um, a few years back to gather in a cave under a church in Fife where they used to keep the women. And it's one of the most unsettling places I've ever been in my life. It was it's completely pitch black in there. It's carved out of a cave. There's water dripping off the walls. There's puddles on the floor. It's just stone and it's freezing cold. And women would be in there for a very long time, you know, and then probably killed. So they just broke the fabric of society by doing these things which I think was the intention I don't know it depends how far you go deep into that and what you're thinking was going on at that point but you know that those women having that control and the control over the rituals as well and and the the which also bonds together the fabric of society you know it was it was a great thing for them to do to achieve what they were trying to achieve and we've seen it kind of um, during the, the Yugoslavian conflict back in the day, well, we used to call it that, it's not anymore, but they took out the, the imams, the Bosnian imams, you know, because it was it's a very easy way to, to break things down and weaken something. 
So I think that's probably what was going on. You know, over my career, I've had Orthodox Christians, you know, really practicing Christians not want to use aromatherapy, say, or practice yoga stretches because it's not deemed Christian. So that kind of lopping off of things that are actually in the Bible, not yoga so much, but aromatherapy, of course, is in the Bible all the way through. Jesus is given frankincense and myrrh, right? But still, that that pastor, that that church that that woman was at said they were, the phrase he used were actually was supernatural, which I thought was a bit ironic because, yes, they are supernatural and they work really, really well and they're, you know, given to us by God. But, you know, all of this comes into it and we know, America knows when you let men get involved with women's health care, what happens? Right? <laughs> you have to start paying for things you shouldn't have to pay for and you're cut off from things you should have access for and your choices are taken away, right? So it's very, very complex, all of this. It's not really as simple as it's just about having a baby and making sure everyone's physically well. You know, it's a political thing. My favorite Bible verse, and the midwives disobeyed. It's been going on forever. <laughs> it's been going on for a very long time. It's really important to to hold the complexity of these issues. And you just spoke really yeah. beautifully to many different aspects of this and how it's trickled down to us even in modern times. And there's that ancestral trauma as well. And yeah. something uh, that I am quite familiar with is ancestral healing. And this is something that I bring to my work and something that I teach and guide women through. And this whole concept of epigenetics, which has come forward in the past uh, you know, few decades, I think it is now, is so fascinating where literally there are gene switches that get turned on and off that affect the baby and even the grandchildren. There's a very sensitive time for women in this epigenetics process, which is when they're pregnant. Like they actually show when the woman is pregnant, that is when she's most susceptible to this trauma that literally affects the gene switches that then get passed on to her child and maybe even her grandchildren. So yeah, I find this, this topic so interesting and multifaceted in all the ways that you've just spoken to We've talked a little bit about how some of these traditions have been broken, I suppose, through through the church, through the patriarchy, what have you. So what I'm really interested to know, actually, though, is what has survived, what has, uh, in the Scottish tradition, especially, since that's what you're, you're rooted into so much, what kinds of practices, rituals do we still have? Um, you know, and how do you bring these practices into your work? And, you know, how would our Gaelic ancestors gone through the birthing process? So I would love for you just to share some of your wisdom on this. It really is just so fascinating to me. It's pretty bad news, Tara. Like, it's basically almost zero, right? That survived. They're just, I mean, I'm sat here, there's a a basket with a Bridget's ribbon on every year. My my ribbon goes out, right, on Bridget's Eve. After seven years, it's very powerful medicine, and it's tied on the basket that I bring to births with me. So there are people like me really trying to introduce those little things again. I think probably in my lifetime, they will start to become included again. Scottish people are very proud of their culture. They learn about it. They know about it to some degree, you know, and, and things are being reclaimed all the time. Gaelic is, you know, on a 
big, big, on Duolingo, I think it was like the, the fastest climb was Gaelic. And it's, it's a lot of you guys learning it. It's not just us here. So the names are coming back. You know, you go to the, the school now with the little ones and you see all the pegs and they're all Gaelic names. And it's the same in Ireland too. I think it's going to take a very long time for it to be where so we would do things like um the midwives used to walk around the bed three times with a piece of burning fur right after the birth and i think you know eventually as people like to weave things back in like jumping the broom at a marriage right weaving things back in that were important to their ancestors i i think we'll see a resurgence here but also it's very hard to find those things again because it's oral tradition but in scotland we do really well with oral tradition so we have the i'm sure you know the website the kiss the riches do you know that website if you don't oh, i'm gonna i'll send you a link so the kiss the riches is probably the best example and it's a, a kind of repository of recordings of elders and we've done that a lot we have the scottish lullaby project we have the sea shanty project and so it's all there to pick through you know and i am picking through it and i am pulling things out and i'd like to get that you know, out into the world a bit more, but it's just so very rare. There's little things left, like people will make comment on the shape of a bump. You know, you put a coin in a newborn's hand, but now we're also afraid of germs. And now with the pandemic, that'll be over entirely. <laughs> but that was to bless the baby, you know. I mean, I brought my my baby here when she was about two months old, my second baby, with her red hair. Everybody loved her, right? She looks about as Merida Scottish as you can get. So she came back absolutely loaded. And I'm like sanitizing her hands afterwards. But there's little things there. And that, you know, for really for humans, that kind of thing is vital. I remember as a child having coins put in my hand by my Irish elders. And what that means is you you deserve riches, child. You deserve abundance. You, it's, it's a prayer, right, of, of well-wishing on that child. And what have we lost when we don't have that? The anthropologist will tell you it's everything. It's everything, regardless of whether you believe it to be true or not. What it does in our brain and our society, community, everything is is, you know, is lost. Right. And I think we're we're realizing that we can't just have a surgical process for this massive transition. You know, it's more than that. <laughs> it's, it is all that ancestral stuff we were just talking about. Right. The epigenetic stuff. If we keep going the way we are, we won't be able to give birth anymore. We're taking ourselves into that world that we've taken pedigree dogs into, you know, where they can't get out because there's been so much surgical birth because they've been trying to breed their heads bigger or whatever. So we need Michel O'Don. He has a lot of research. He has the primal health database. This is his world now looking at epigenetics. And that database is full to the brim of research looking at the impact of what we're doing in the birthing room on society much more self-harm self-killing violence you know the inability to connect because the birth process and meeting you know your parents is your biggest oxytocin bath and oxytocin of course is our hormone of connection and bonding and the ability to love 
And the more oxytocin you get, the more receptors you grow, and it just becomes a big love snowball situation. But it's, you know, if you don't get the bathing, you don't get the receptors, and then what sort of person are you out in the world? Not a great one, basically, because you can't connect and you can't love and you don't have the same, you know, situation that you would have done if you'd have been the baby bathed in love. We're, we're hearing more about this kind of stuff these days. Gabor Mate is, you know, a hero. Michelle O'Don is a hero. It's like people are popping off saying these things all over the place. So hopefully that means we're going in the right direction. Yes, I was watching a video by Gabor Mate uh, last year, and I think it was him who said this, that the first year of a child's life, the first year of your life is the most impactful to your development. And if that first year of your life developmentally, if you have great challenge, if you're not surrounded by love and oxytocin, it's really difficult to recover from that. And mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just really um, heartbreaking that that is so common. And I absolutely love what you said about the loss of traditions really being a loss of our humanity, the loss of even the way that we are going to be able to reproduce in future. I've seen horrific stats on infertility and the direction that we're going in is like, are we even going to be able to reproduce in 50 years from now? So all of this matters so, so much. Something I, I, I wanted to ask you about, because uh, I saw this on your Instagram page, was about the seaweed. So we um, we have this traditional postpartum course and they, they'll come and spend some days with me. But then every other month we have a session where we go in on something. And the last something we went in on was seaweed. And I know all about its you know nutrition and medicinal values but I didn't know all about the folk tales so I went off on a big journey and oh I found so much delight around the world a lot of really beautiful indigenous American things and got you know kind of characters and carvings but in Scotland one thing that I found which I loved is that you know we also have this divine feminine aspect in the sea so we're hearing a lot about Ocean and Yamaya and, you know, we have Beyonce in her yellow dress smashing up cars and, be, you know, representing this goddess, this feminine divine principle in the sea. And I and I found uncovered the Scottish version, the mother of the sea. And we would go not so long ago, actually, you know, from Bridget's day on from the spring tides and we would perform rituals where we would toss the kelp into the sea in her honor and you know ask for her blessing and and I just love that because the sea is very important in traditional midwifery because bringing up yin energy is very important when you're pregnant so that you can birth because you need to be kind of saturated with the yin energy in the traditions so I take people to the sea a lot I live in a port so it's just it's just down there somewhere and sometimes we toss seaweed in now and ask for help you know and we're very the opposite of that in the west you know we're very yangy because we have to go through all these institutions and systems that are designed for men white men especially right so it's but it's of utmost importance somewhere like scotland where people are you know busy working jobs and, and in a man's world if you like so yeah it's beautiful isn't it it's beautiful mm. and then to think about consuming those products 
that you're you know they're kind of blessings from the sea literally and that they're saturated with that energy i love seaweed i can't get enough of it i eat it daily <laughs> so i'm bringing the traditions back alone in my kitchen you know i worked with a very successful chef a, a couple of years ago around the corner from here and we were having that conversation about how all this old people's food that we used to talk about as a bit disgusting like bone broth and seaweed and it was for paupers nettles and so on it's all it's all coming back now in the high-end restaurants you're gonna get you know your seaweed butter we've all had seaweed butter on something <laughs> so but it's the realm of the poor person you know the oyster the seaweed all of those that for everybody is not unachievable there's a lovely, um, what's the documentary, High on Hog on Netflix, and they're looking at foodways and, you know, food traveling from Africa to America because of the horrors that have happened. And there was one chef there, and he, he's got a kind of bee in his bonnet about getting oysters back into the black community in America and it not being seen as this thing that you have when you're five star somewhere and it's very expensive because it belongs you know to to everyone and he's just on the street i think he's in new york on the street giving out oysters to people it's brilliant i love it so seaweed i think is in that category it's very good for us it's you know out there in abundance we can all go and get it it's a very good respiratory tonic. So, you know, get on it now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah. so nourishing to new mothers, I'm sure. So yeah. nourishing the collagen, the iodine. I mean, there's a long, you know, we spent three hours talking about everything that it will do for new mums. So yeah. if this is, you know, this is healthcare when you can just walk down the road, you know, I've quite frequent occasions walked with a mother on the beach and said, come on, we'll pick that up. You can use that when you have your baby in the bath. <laughs> That's healthcare. Mm -hmm. The way we deal with things in cities now to get access to that sort of healthcare with seaweed and so on, it's going to cost you a lot of money, a seaweed bath in a spa, 120 pounds, what's the $150. <laughs> No, you could just pick it up off the beach and throw it in your bath. You know, it's easy. Yes. I get such a feeling from seaweed. I can't really describe it. And I'm I'm very aware of uh, the many, many people from Ireland and Scotland and other places who that was their livelihood was to gather seaweed. And in Ireland, there are different types of seaweed gatherers mm -hmm. traditionally. And there's even a song called Dulaman. Goes Dulaman na binyabui, Dulaman gwelak, Dulaman na farika, shebara vi inherin. And it's all about the seaweed gathering. And this is such important ancestral medicine and women's medicine that we need to be bringing back. And so I just so appreciate this this conversation about these ways about these beautiful traditions i'm so appreciative of this conversation and seeing some really beautiful comments in the chat here too someone's sharing this is the most important discussion and remembering of our time thank you nicola and tara thank you thank you for receiving whoever um i can't see who that is exactly but thank you so much for for saying that and i very much agree and uh, something that I just wanted to dive into just for the next few minutes is the connection between doulas and midwives as uh, opening the gate and being these sacred gatekeepers for life, but also mm -hmm. for death. So in the Irish tradition, and maybe this is true in Scotland as well, there are the Mural Queensha, the keening women who would have done the rituals at the wakes, at the funerals, to help the soul of who has died to cross in 
into the other world. And that was done through sound, you know, ritual and sound. And I absolutely adore all of the beautiful traditions connected with keening. And when I did a 12-week keening course with my mentor, Mary McLaughlin, she was sharing how many of the the keeners would have also been midwives and that they actually were the midwife of the community. And this is partly why they were so persecuted during the time of the witch hunts and why keening really died out because they had such a powerful role in society, which is just what you were saying earlier. So I would just love to hear any thoughts that come to you about this connection between women as the gatekeepers of life and the gatekeepers of death. And you're right, you know, that was a really, really important part of their role. They were the shamans, right? They were the shamans. Like we had this beautiful um evening at the Scottish Storytelling Center that was around keening and death rituals. And and I hadn't met this woman before. You might you may have met her. She's an Irish elder called Philida. And she was in a very secluded situation in Ireland. So, you know, it was kind of going a bit slower with the trajectory than the rest. So she still remembers the keening women coming. And she got on stage to to demonstrate what she saw as a child you know, and keened over this body. And it looked no different to when I've seen Indigenous people with their ceremony. There was so much of the kind of ushering of the energy along, you know, from one world to the next. A lot of, you know, as well as the noises that we associate with grief. So they were ushers, ushering through the transition of the soul, right, at both ends. So, I mean, I would love to see all of that come back because it's a very important part in, in traditional midwifery, you know, all around the world, especially in Australia, actually, the midwives talk about their role being to really connect with the soul that's coming and tell them, look, man, this is this is it. I've done it. It's fine. You're just going to spiral out and you're going to live here for a bit and then you're going to go back. <laughs> that's their job. It's not even, you know, looking at the the body and the healthcare, which is what we've made it. Um, the indigenous medicine traditions tell you that you have the ability to heal seven generations back and forward with a good birth, right? So they knew that that for their role in keeping the whole of society and the ancestors and everybody happy and healthy, that they have to do their best to make that ceremony of birth a good one for that soul coming in for the parents as well you know the shift that will happen with the parents as a result of the good birth of the baby and the, the parents being bathed in oxytocin so it is it's a shamanic process midwifery I actually met somebody recently who's coming out of academia as a high academic midwife and she's becoming a shaman. And I met a doctor as well that's leaving their practice to become a shaman and a herbalist. And so I hope that there will be some cross-pollination. We've got obstetricians and professors in our red tent, you know. It's not, it should be that we can come together as a team and make the best situation for the person in front of us if they need a surgeon we need a surgeon right but we need a safe one that's not practicing racialized medicine or misogyny or whatever else comes in the mix so those kind of midwives there when you watch them work they are 
stepping between two worlds, right? Most understandings are that the mother has to go off to the realm of the dead, the realm of the souls, whatever you want to call it, to collect her baby who may have just had another life or whatever, but they're chilling in another realm and that woman's got to go and get it. So the the midwife is her shaman on her big journey. Right? Anyone that's had a baby, natural childbirth will tell you it's a big journey to somewhere else and back again. So it hasn't been lost because I know many clinical midwives that have respect for that process and journey, but they can't talk about it at work. They can't be open about it. They can't talk to their colleagues about it. The doctor that I was just mentioning was working in infectious diseases during the first year of the pandemic, right? Very, very harsh and became very upset with how quickly everyone went into sort of disrespecting dead bodies and because they're busy and whatever else and started to sing and open the windows and just to whatever with her medical license and nobody bothered her and tending to the you know the bodies better and and it's so moving isn't it I've said that so many times and I've still got a rush of goosebumps saying it again you know so perhaps we can start knitting together a better situation that honors every part of us not just our anatomy and physiology because even what we're doing with obstetrics doesn't even really honor the anatomy and physiology it comes from this system where just a few doctors away they were openly saying you know women are dirty and broken and it doesn't work properly and they're dirty sinners so we'll do it for them we'll manage it for them that's a very different scene, isn't it, to what I was just talking about? <laughs> very different. Yes. It really does feel that this sacredness is coming back, though, really wanting mm. to be remembered and reclaimed. And I love how you're talking about, you know, even doctors and surgeons coming into your mm. into your doula training and bringing that sacredness back in so many different walks of life and this mm. reverence and respect for for life, for death, for the mother, for the feminine my last question for you for today is really about, well, let me begin by saying that I know so many mothers are feeling so isolated and overwhelmed and mm -hmm. undervalued and under-resourced. And I recently read an article that was basically saying self-care is not enough to fix how burned out mothers are right now. And I realize this could be a whole podcast on its own, but I just wonder if you could share a few words about the importance of mothers being nourished, you know, mind, body, spirit, as you know, from your perspective as a doula. You know, we're gaslighting women with all of that. You should just do a bit of self-care. It's fine. You'll be fine. All you need is a bit of journaling after your trauma or whatever it is that, you know, women have just been through or their abandonment, you know, they've done this huge process of having a baby and then there's no one there to look after them. So, you know, I'm trying really hard to encourage, especially the postpartum students to go out into their communities and start organizing, you know, midwives are activists traditionally and they go out and they do whatever needs to be done. I've got another traditional midwife friend. She landed somewhere, set up a clinic, realized there was no clean water and she set to work making sure the whole mountain had clean water, right? <laughs> Our organization. So, you know, bringing mothers together so that they can, you know, make support systems for each other. You only need a small handful of people to sign up on a 40 days roster in a community to make sure that a woman has a visit every day and somebody brings a pot of soup 
and a toy for the other children and takes the dog for a walk, right? You can, every, all of us can sign up for that. That's really easy. That's what we used to do. I mean, my mom came to be with me when I had my baby, so it wasn't gone from my family and I will do that for my children, right? But if we can get the whole community on board, I'm struck by the deterioration of this so rapidly over my lifetime. You know, when you have a bereavement now, say, or a baby now, it's people from certain communities that will come around with food and so on. The Italians come, the Irish Catholics come, the Muslims come, <laughs> you know, people that still have that in their in their ideas, but everybody else is just sort of too busy, you know, and can't be bothered and getting into that, well, I'm suffering, you can suffer too mode. So just a bit of organization in the community goes a long way and teaching people the things that have been lost, how to make bone broth for a new mum. That's over in 10 minutes. I do that all the time to dads, especially Pete, you're going to be a dad. You need to learn how to cook. <laughs> She's not, she can't cook for you anymore. Let's go. 10 minutes later, he knows how to make really good chicken soup like, and he's loved forever by his whole family and he'll probably teach other people and maybe he'll teach his sons as well and daughters so just bringing back healthcare into the family is everything you know and I think that's the solution to that problem too so no one's abandoned and doesn't know how to care for their wounds and you know is just sad with no one loving them and that's a very common postpartum situation crying your eyes out you've got a terrible wound that nobody wants to give you anything to help heal everyone's sort of saying things to you like what do you want to breastfeed for that's a whole lot of nonsense you know you weren't breastfed you're fine <laughs> it's just a barrage a tsunami right of negativity and so we need to go back to well done you've done great here's your soup sit down drink this i'm rubbing your feet you know don't get out of bed you're not allowed mode <laughs> mm, thank you so much i can feel how much this is needed how much this is needed wonderful to be here with you and um thanking all of our ancestors that we welcomed in and we released them back to their business <laughs> yes thank you i was just about to say that also <laughs> i have yes. to do that sometimes if i forget and we do this in you know training circles and so on and maybe i'm in an airbnb with everyone's you know a grandfather from 500 years ago swimming around in the room with me so i have to remember as well to send them away <laughs> yes really honoring our ancestors who we all called in at the beginning and letting them go and just really honoring all the medicine that has transpired through this conversation mm -hmm. and nicola i would love uh, for you to share with everyone how they can find you any information you want to offer you know your website etc just let people know how they can get in touch with you Probably the easiest thing to remember is Red Tent Doulas. So if you Google Red Tent Doulas, you'll find me eventually. You'll find the website and the emails on there. Yeah. And a Red Tent you must have spoken about before was where women went in their bleeding times to, you know, not have this orientalist gaze of lying on, you know, couches, smoking opium. I think they were probably in there laughing, telling dirty jokes, getting drunk and sharing stories, you know, sharing wisdoms. So that's why we're the Red Tent. So, yeah, look up Red Tent Doulas and you'll find me. <laughs> Wonderful. 
If you're listening to this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please come and join us in the Dreaming the Ancestors Facebook community. We have such a gorgeous circle of women and a few men as well. And it's such a beautiful place where we really tend to the ancestors. We talk about the ancestors, we share stories, and that's also where this podcast is held live every month. You're very welcome to check out my work at tara-wild.com or celticroundhouse.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Nicola, once again. My pleasure. Thank Mm -hmm. you for having me. It's been Mm -hmm. wonderful.